Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Zach, welcome to Generation Jihad. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hey, appreciate it, Bill. Thanks for having us. It's uh, we consider Generation Jihad and and the work you do to kind of be the uh, the father of our podcast. We were big fans before uh, coming on and before having you on. So it's uh, great to be here. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having us on. Really excited to join you today to talk about some of our experiences. No, guys, thanks, and no greater compliment there, Stu. I really appreciate that. Um, you guys, we run a great show, and um, if I can, uh, you know, be the stepfather of that, um, I'll, I'll take it. Thanks. Before we get started, before we get into the meat of the conversation with Stu and Zach, obviously very interested in their experiences in Afghanistan, serving as intelligence analysts and what they experienced during that critical time in Afghanistan after control from the U.S. to the Afghan military and Afghan police and Afghan government. I would say 2015 to 2017 time frame was quite interesting. And I think that's when we started seeing the wheels begin to fall off. I want to just get their experiences in the military with Stu and with Zach. They both deployed overseas, Stu in Afghanistan, Zach in Iraq. Just give us a little flavor of what you experienced in the military. I'll start with you, Stu. Again, fellow airborne, so you're going to get priority on this show. What was your experience in Afghanistan? Again, three tours in Afghanistan, hats off in such a short period of time. What was that like? What did you learn? Well, I was I was lucky enough to get set up with my my only assignment in the army with First Battalion, Third Special Forces Group. Great group of guys. We I, I had just graduated from Airborne School, and when I arrived in late July 2012, we were preparing to deploy. And so, kind of a kind of a big big mess of getting ready to go. And uh, never even got any garrison time, did you? Oh yeah. I, I was I was meeting the people that we were we were going to be supporting from the from the battalion like a few days before we got out there. I actually I met a uh, a couple guys that uh, that have bases named after them. I had met uh, Chief Duskin uh, right before my first deployment. Then I was actually stationed at Camp Duskin my second deployment. But first deployment was probably the most kinetic. That was 2012 2013 time frame. It was. A lot of uh, SF teams doing doing what arguably could be called ranger stuff, <laughs> embedding in the night raids, a lot of that action. Now, that's a really interesting point. I think it's one of the mistakes we made with the Afghan commandos, right? Now, we use them as, as shock troops and, and whatnot when they took them away from, or actually in the case of the Afghan commandos, they were often tasked to do things like hold bases in remote areas when they should have been doing those night raids and you know, SF, uh, for those who aren't aware, special forces really shouldn't be serving as rangers doing those type of things. And that's the position that many of them were put, put in. I just wanted to mention that before we got on because I would have forgot about it. So but go on, Stu. Sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. And we, we saw we saw a lot of the um, some of the early successes of the ALP, at least from from my perspective during those early days. Uh a program which unfortunately seemed like it was doomed to to fail because of just lack of care. I think mainly from the Afghan side, but also um, changing uh, priorities from the U.S. side. I think my first deployment, like they were getting set up and they were fairly well equipped. And by the second deployment, you had maybe one guy in ten with a magazine, and they were just sort of a, a wannabe neighborhood watch and completely ineffective. 
Yeah, and that's the ALP is the Afghan local police. That was a program that was highly touted by the U.S. military as being the way forward in Afghanistan, kind, kind of like the awakening was, um, Arbakai obviously as well, as well in Afghanistan, but the awakening or the sons of Iraq in, in, of course, in Iraq from 2007 to 2010, 11. Yeah, I, I, I like to think of it as it, it was a good OER for the guy who made it and a bad OER for someone else down, down the line who inherited it as many of the programs in Afghanistan were. Um, but yeah, I was, I was mainly, so for people who haven't had a lot of, um, like haven't seen a lot from like the Intel side, you mainly read, read reports, um, pretty much all day you're making PowerPoints and we were supporting, um, operations for, uh, for the SF teams to go out, um, creating, we, we had this cool, we called it the, the kill slide for the, for, uh, getting airstrikes on, on targets, but, um, yeah, so for first deployment kind of had a left a fairly positive view of Afghanistan in my mind. It felt like we were we were doing something. We had I think three or four SODIFs in the area, which is um, a battalion of special forces troops, which was, I think was already drawn down from what they previously had. Now by by the time I had my second deployment in 2014, we were down to three SODIFs. So. We had uh, uh, one battalion covering the north northeast, and uh, one team covering the south, and one team covering kind of the the northwest. And by my third deployment, we had one SF battalion covering the entire country. So it just it, it essentially became just a numbers game, and you can't you can't really secure areas where uh, my first deployment we had maybe a platoon of. Uh, or a, a full SF team in each district of a province. We now had one team for an entire province and maybe part of another one. Yeah, that's absolutely insane if you think about it. That's you know, what's the point of keeping them keeping them there? This was always something that bothered me about the Afghanistan um, the numbers game. You know, how many troops do we have in country? Was was the question? Is it a thousand? Is it five thousand? Is it ten thousand? And my response to that was, I don't care what the number is, the, the number of troops we should have in Afghanistan. Well, first of all, we could have 10,000 cooks or 20,000 cooks and, and admin people, and it's not going to make much of a difference. Um, we need to have the right number of troops to accomplish the mission and one special forces battalion covering the whole country certainly wasn't going to make that happen. I'm pretty sure. You well, everything you've said, Stu, is you're probably in complete agreement with that. And you know, this is one of the reasons, you know, the the desire to draw down in Afghanistan to get that number below X thousand as time went on. Um, Afghanistan became under resourced and uh it's it helped or it it contributed to us eventually losing you know for us our our support for the afghan military for the afghan local police for the afghan national police for for them they needed support from special forces and from other other assets and they just weren't going to get them at a certain point in time there's no way one battalion of special forces can cover a country the size of afghanistan yeah i mean i, I some something that we've we've often said is uh the biggest probably the biggest detriment to the war effort in afghanistan was the rise of the war in iraq and uh, that area of the world basically drew all of the media coverage and i i i mean i think the way it generally works is if people aren't watching people at home aren't uh, worried about what you're doing then you don't need to draw as many assets and you can kind of keep things rolling and 
I, I think it ended up being basically just a like hold position for the, the people that were in charge of it. You're, you're trying to not lose the war instead of trying to accomplish the uh, mission criteria that you're setting out. And that, I mean, that, that trickles down, you know, you had, we had some, some good people that were uh, working definitely at the lower levels. I don't know a single SF team who was throwing in the towel when they were showing up there. And unfortunately, I think the, the leadership was just trying to get their OER bullet points and, and get out on skate. Yeah. When you're playing to not lose, um, kicking that can down the road, it's not good. And, you know, you touched on another thing and I'll keep it real brief. One of my biggest complaints about the war, there's two of them. One was four successive presidents refused to stand up and explain why the mission of Iraq, the mission of Afghanistan was important. And for the reason you just stated, that's why it's needed. The American public will lose interest, wonders why they're there, and you won't get, you guys who are downrange won't get the resources that you need because the American public isn't aware of it. And the other one is, you know, the refusal to recognize the nature of our enemy, um, which we'll talk about more, the, 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 its use of ideology its importance of its ideology and things like that, saying the Taliban's moderate when we all know that it's a radical Islamist terrorist organization, et cetera, et cetera. So let's move on to you. Zach, tell us a little bit about your time downrange. You were in an Iraq right around the drawdown, if not at the drawdown. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I was in the uh I was in the last unit, last active duty unit to leave uh Iraq. I was with uh, 18th Airborne Corps, got there in October of 2010. And then I left October of 2011, and then the remnants left in December when everybody else was gone. Uh, most of my time there, and like pointed out, this is after the Sunni awakening. So me as the Sunni targeting analyst, I had not a whole lot to do. Uh, mostly a lot of trend analysis for uh, targeting of government officials in Baghdad, like trying to track when they were being attacked either on the way to work or people were attaching MAIEDs, magnetically attached IEDs to the doors of their homes and stuff like that, trying to help create uh, different travel patterns and, and things like that, as well as foreign fighter facilitation in the north. We we found that there was a very strong correlation, right? On the on the zero to one scale, it is a correlation like, like a 0.98. That anytime a foreigner came in through northern Iraq, they were going to become a suicide bomber. Um, and that was, I mean, the majority of my job for the year plus that I was there. Yeah, and at that time, people were saying Al-Qaeda in Iraq which ultimately became the Islamic State, was defeated. That, you know, we've killed their their Abu Bakr Baghdadi and Abu Ayyub al-Masri, the, the, the leader of the Islam, who was then the Islamic State of Iraq, as well as its war minister was uh, was Abu Ayyub al-Masri. So everyone was happy. Everyone was celebrating. The war in Iraq was over. And yet you're telling me you are still tracking suicide foreign fighters to serve as suicide bombers and whatnot coming in. And this is something I knew intuitively, right? These groups, there's an ebb and flow that the jihad certainly, I'm sure these, sure the Al Qaeda in Iraq had a, had a, had a downturn, but um, they were still trying. And, and, you know, it's no accident that three short years later, they took control of Fallujah, Ramadi, and most of Western Anbar. And then, within one year, you know, broke from Al-Qaeda or actually Al-Qaeda ejected the Islamic State because of the disagreement. The Islamic State was formed, they overrun Mosul, and, you know, the rest is history. I remember having a debate with uh, Peter Bergen, and um, I can't remember the name of the gentleman, but it was uh, Admiral Mullins, former chief chief of staff when he was the uh, the um, chairman, joint chiefs of staff, and, and Peter Bergen turns to me and says, 
you know, Bill, you, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Al-Qaeda is defeated. You, you were in Iraq because I had embedded in Iraq multiple times. You saw it yourself. And my response to him was, they were, they took a beating, but they're still there. At that point in time, I want to say it was 2011 or 12, I was watching Al-Qaeda videos of them running into Haditha and um, Barwana, two towns that I had been embedded in uh, with the U.S. Army and the Iraqi Army, and were doing what they did in Mosul and, and in Ramadi and Fallujah in 2013. And I was warning people, this isn't over. They're still, you know, they're rebuilding their strength. Take a look at this video. This is pretty damning is what was happening. So, yeah, um, don't mean to opine so much, but uh, your stories, when you guys are talking, you know, reminds me of a lot of history. That that was a decade ago, right? And here we are, right? There's still, these groups are still active. Well, and of course, Taliban is is in control of Afghanistan, which is absolutely amazing. So, Real, real quick, Bill. So the last thing I did before I left Iraq, um, they asked the, I mean, we're essentially regional analysts, right? They asked us to write like an informal one pager on just the the future of whatever it is that we were tracking. And I remember writing, you know, exactly. Al Qaeda is not defeated. They're just in Syria. Um, that didn't, you know, I was, I was ambiguous because as intelligence analysts, we tend to be ambiguous. Like, I'm not really sure if they're going to try to come back into Iraq or not, but they're certainly not gone. They're in Syria. Like that was, and that was the consensus opinion of the intel shop. Right? It wasn't like I was a specialist at the time. It's not like specialist pop said, this is the case. So it's the case. Like that was agreed upon within the skiff. Like, yeah, they're not gone. They're just gone from Iraq, at least temporarily. Right. And that's, you know, I, I call it McBoar. Right. People think that you just go, you drive in, order your killing of terrorist leaders and, you know, install a new government. And then you just drive off with your victory. We think in terms of election cycles in two and four years. And we're, we're dealing with groups that are working in terms of decades and generations. And they're, they're committed to that fight. They're, we underestimate them routinely. And that's how, you know, we've gotten into trouble. I mean, how many times has Al Qaeda and in Afghanistan and Pakistan, been decimated, degraded, defeated, um, pick your D word, done, destroyed, all of those things. And yet, if you have to say that for 13, 14 successive years, maybe they're not decimated, degraded, defeated, de- de- uh, destroyed, and done. Maybe your analysis is wrong. So let, let's get into that a little bit. Before we go there, you guys met in Kandahar in 2016, correct? What were you doing in Kandahar at that point in time? This is when you guys both were out of the military and you were working as civilian contractors in the intelligence world, correct? I got to Kandahar in July of 2016. And then I think, Stu, you were like a month or two right after me. And we. I, I was like October. Y'all, y'all were rolling before I okay, got there. Three months. So um, Stu came out in October. And when I was there, I was the Kandahar provincial analyst. There were a few of us within the, the team and we provided the analytical support for train advises this command south which most people would have known it previously as rc south or regional command south um and then Stu, you were the aruzgan analyst correct and dekundi yeah and it, yeah and and dekundi but dekundi doesn't count tajiks and uh, and Uyghurs handled their own um but yeah it was it was definitely shocking to me to see the difference between a working with a group that had like the uh, the capability and mission to go after the enemy as opposed to a group that's training the afghans to do so and that that was definitely the biggest because for 
working in group, you know, you're making intelligence reports that might lead the commander to say, hey, okay, well, we're going to target this group now. Instead, it's more, okay, well, we'll try to work with the Afghans to get them to go after this group, potentially, if we can work on corruption, which was always the the, the major uh, stopping point for them. And I don't think they ever got over it. And you both arrived in country after the raid on Shorabak, right? That was October 2015, correct? Uh, yes. And yes. so a little bit of, I'm sure the listeners are probably tired of hearing me tell this story, but from 2010 to 2015, the estimate of Al-Qaeda's strength in Afghanistan from that it started at the CIA and then just was picked up by everyone was that Al-Qaeda had a constant estimate of 50 to 100 fighters in Afghanistan. Um, that was what the president said to two, uh, yeah, no, actually that was what the president said. That's what the director of the CIA said. Um, and it was just repeated. So what would you, you worked in the South where you had various jihadist groups operating. How would you, uh, and then obviously wait, before I go there, we, that estimate only changed to upwards of 200 after that raid in Shorebach when the U S hit two, uh, uh large Al Qaeda camps. Um, in Shorabat district, right on the border with Pakistan, shocking. And they killed about 150 to 200, uh, Al Qaeda fighters and, and, um, operatives during that raid. And then the U S military turned around and said, well, maybe that number's around 200. What did, what did you see? You, you were involved in the targeting. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to disclose any, uh, information here that's, uh, classified, but I, I know that you could speak in generalities. What did, did a 50 to 100 Al Qaeda in Afghanistan and that estimate make sense to you? Per district no. along the border. Yeah, right. What would you say the estimate would be for, for Kandahar province? Say? Oh, I'd probably put Kandahar at probably somewhere around three to 400 minimum. And Stu, you worked with Inarugan, is right? Is that correct? You worked with Inarugan? Uh, what, yes. what would you say? Probably two to three hundred. Aruzgan was difficult because much of the when I inherited it, much of the province had been cut off from the provincial capital for months, if not years. So, yeah. <laughs> I think at that point in time, the um, every district was at least contested, correct? Except for the capital. Even then, I think it, I would I rated it as contested, given just how poorly things were going there. Tagab district was just insanely busy and uh Deiraud was another area that was just entirely contested. We actually had a uh crap Zach, what was the word for it? The, the we had we had an EEP, which was a sort of an expeditionary uh push up of our our forces to support the Afghan fight there. And I remember there was a road going north of the provincial center that they couldn't pass through. And I continued um, contracting uh, for a couple years after Zach left, and I don't think they ever cleared that road. It was, it was insane. There, there was such a concentration of uh, Taliban fighters that were just maintaining total uh, control of the area. And Aruzgan has, you know, such historical significance for uh, the Afghan war as well. I mean, it was uh, there. Uh, there were several uh, uh, provincial figures there that were influential in the forming of the. Um, Jeroa and uh, the sort of the first major blows in removing the Taliban, I'd feel like were uh, fought there. So it was it was interesting kind of seeing such an important area being uh, just completely out of control by that time. And 
the the weird thing for me was I came I came out of my unlike Zach I came out of my enlisted time feeling fairly positive about about the war from my perspective up until that time and then I get there in 20 end of 2016 and it's like oh no what what has become of this place it's rough when you become a cynic isn't it just a tough place to be I mean look I was one of the few people that felt the surge can work in Iraq in 2007 people in Washington you could fit them all in a phone booth I was one of them I had been there enough to see but you know what i had learned was once you know the us military had the capability to make a lot of things happen but what we lacked was the united states lacked was political will to see these hard earned gains through um so i'm just going to summarize what you both said you still i believe you said 2 to 300 in ruzgan would you include turkestan islamic party in that um estimate did you see evidence of them working there the thing it, it wasn't supported in the report reporting because our um capabilities were so limited we'd we also had to deal with the fact that our uh, our human networks were decimated from the 2014 we're going to pull out of afghanistan get everything clear and then deciding not to pull out issue and zach you said around two to th- or three to four three to five hundred is that what you said or three to four what, what was your estimate for Kandar? three to four hundred so low end we're talking around 500 al-qaeda in two provinces alone we're not even talking about places like Kunar Nuristan, Paktia, Paktika Coast. Um, I look, I could go on and name up Helmand, not even talking about Helmand. Um, yeah, so that's a how do how do leaders come up with estimates like fifty to hundred Al Qaeda in Afghanistan when you analysts are on the ground are saying this is what we're saying? Where what happens between your assessments at the provincial level and going up the chain of command through Department of Defense. Well, there's there's an idea in Afghanistan that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with called Afghan math, where we get yeah. we get reports from our Afghan allies like, oh, we killed, you know, a hundred Taliban in this area. And really, you know, maybe there was a firefight and they wounded five members of a squad. Well, we saw essentially the reverse of that happening on the U.S. side, where we, as analysts, would look at an area and say, you know, the situation is dire. Um, the provincial capital has is all but under siege, and um, Jeroa control of the area is far surpassed by the shadow governments of the Taliban. Now, when a commander hears that, he what he hears is, oh, my. And I should I should say higher level commanders. We're talking like like regional commanders. When they hear that, it's well, my career is based off of this war that I inherited. Uh, it's the understanding of Congress and the American people, the five who are still paying attention to the war, that we're, things are going well here, and we need a positive spin on this intelligence. And unfortunately, time after time, we saw our reports being manipulated we saw the uh, the our our ability to categorize an area as contested or controlled was changed we had a we had a system to where you know we would we would rank a district say like a one a one to five out of like afghan control versus taliban control and it was almost impossible to get a one for a one the like district governor would have to have completely vacated the area but if he's still there and he controls nothing but the building he's sitting in, then it's a three. So there, there's almost no way to show an area is worse than, you know, a, a C average. Let me um, tell you, you guys familiar what happened with Ghazni when Ghazni City fell? I believe that was in 
2016 or 17. I think it was 16. You, you remember that? You guys were in country at that time. You probably were neck deep in. So uh, I'm going to just make the numbers up here. I'd actually have to have done some, you know, pulled them up. Uh, um, but let's say Gosney has, and I'm, again, 17 districts. I don't know what the exact number is. The Afghan government was claiming seven districts were under government control. Exactly what you're describing, by the way, Stu. And then Ghazni City fell. And then the New York Times learned that there were seven districts that were being administered from Ghazni City. And those districts were no longer under government control because the district governors couldn't put the word in quotes, administer their districts from the capital because those districts were under Taliban control. This is how the system was being gamed. Um, the U.S. military had to, uh, you know, understand this. They had to have known those districts were un- not under con- um, government, to Afghan government control. And yet they, you know, again, like you said, uh, somebody for some reason didn't want to say it. What's your experience with that, uh, Zach? What's your take on how this, why this information was, um, shall we say, uh, mutated or downplayed or softened? The edges were softened. I think a lot of it's hubris amongst the commanders. Uh, you know, you don't want to be the guy left holding the bag when this all you know falls apart. So you keep convincing yourself that it's a great success, and you find different ways to um, you know contort the information to get there. And I, for me, as a Kandahar analyst, the greatest two examples are Registan and Shoreback. Now. If and I'm sure most of your listeners have been to Afghanistan and, and they're aware that Registan is nothing but a giant desert, but that doesn't mean it's irrelevant. Um, you know, Camp Rhino was set up there for a reason, and they found a shitload of insurgent and extremist material and equipment when they got there. Um, you know, but for the most part, Registan was quiet. That doesn't mean nothing was happening. Um, the Registan and Shoreback district centers were both in Shoreback. So how can Registan be under Afghan control if you're not in Registan. You could make the argument that it's so desolate that it would be it's it's more logistically appropriate to be in Shoreback. Fine, I'll concede that point. But then you look at Shoreback that had to move the district center because the Taliban destroyed a well that was next to it. So it was, you know, you couldn't use it. And you, you essentially were consolidating the government that had no control over anything going on in the country. And outside of the raid in 2015, named the last ANSAF or ISAF or resolute support mission that happened in Shoreback. However, I was told, and the you know, the army loves red, yellow, green charts. I was told to make it green, like it's not green. At best, it's yellow. Realistically, it's red. I lost that fight, you know, and it's because people want to again project success. And really, I think the greatest example of that is February 2017, where General Nicholson's being asked by Senator John, the late Senator John McCain, "Are we winning or losing?" And he says, "We're in a stalemate." The next question Senator McCain asks him is. Um, are the Afghan losses sustainable? To which General Nicholson says, we are able to recruit Afghans at the rate that we're losing Afghans, but it's um, it's it's significant. That wasn't true because we never actually knew how many Afghan soldiers we had because half of them would, not half, I shouldn't speak so matter-of-factly, a, a number of them would would never make it through their basic training or they'd show up high and fail you know, the, the course and not be, yeah, go soldiers, which no, as far as I know, Outside of Sigar, nobody has ever acknowledged ghost soldiers in a significant number. And That's then the fair. next question like 60 was, to 80%, uh, some area. It was a yeah. huge issue. And then ghost the soldier. next thing Senator McCain asked him, he said, Is it true that 
between from 2015 to now, the Taliban have gained 15 percent, uh, an additional 15 percent of territory. And General Nicholson said, yes, well, Bill, I don't have a degree in math, but how can you be in a stalemate? And you've lost damn near one sixth of the country in a year and a half. Yeah, it was. You know, one of the things you mentioned the district control before I'm going to share a quick story. And listeners probably may remember this one. In March 2013, Sangin District in Helmand Province. The this was one of those districts where a couple of buildings in the district center were under government control. Put that in quotes, right? And therefore, and look, even I had to be when I was tracking the districts, I had to grudgingly call that district contested. Um, I only went with three levels, right? I always felt that the, you know, it was some a district was either controlled or contested, right? I, I never thought you could split the baby and say it was more government controlled and more Taliban controlled, something like that. So I didn't have the option of going to two or four, right, in, in that chart. So the the government's, the Afghan government's position, military's position becomes untenable. The resolute support comes in and levels the, you know, evacuates the 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 Afghan military and the, the district governor in the middle of the night and then flatten the district center and then say, Sangin district's still under our control. We just moved the district center four miles away. I mean, they essentially said we had to destroy the district to save it, the center to save it. And, you know, it was things like this that were happening that that's how you knew we were losing. I mean, you just, you can't say things like that with a straight face. Um, Kandahar, like many of the districts in Kandahar province were, routinely contested one of the things um so you know i i gathered my own data for the for the maps again really difficult i always said it was more like a, a you know like a impressionist painting than it was a, a photograph you could change a couple of pixels here and there but you still get the same picture kandahar looked bad um it, much of it, it, it was contested except for kandahar city and um and a couple of other key districts um what were you seeing at that time? What did what, what did this situation in Kandahar look like? How how much control and how contested was Kandahar according to your assessment, not according to what the um, general major put down? I mean, there there was not a a lot of contesting, in my opinion. There was either what was controlled by the Afghans and the Americans, which was Kandahar City proper, and then there was everything else. Um, in October of 2016, the Taliban cut off route bear which was the critical supply node into Aruzgan. And when that happened, Stu's job became really difficult because now we had no direct reason, no, no direct line of communication, ground line of communication into Aruzgan. And I remember I came into work and it happened like early in the morning. I came in and I'm being told Taliban cut off route air. I'm saying to myself, when did this happen? They tell me, oh, it happened three hours ago. Okay. When did the push to regain the route start? Oh, it hadn't happened yet. Like, we need that route. It's, it's kind of a necessary thing. You can't control Kandahar and you can't control the Ruzgan if you don't have route there. What we ended up doing was we, we built a dirt road around the mountain pass that was even more inhospitable than route there already was in the wintertime. And that was, I, I said, I'd been in country for three months and that's when I realized that this was all just a, you know, a paper tiger. Um, you know, we, we never had any sort of control over in Maywan district going into Helmand province, which, you know, if, if for the people unfamiliar, Maywan that is right on the Kandahar Helmand border. That's where a lot of your opium processing facilities or poppy processing uh, facilities were. That's where the Taliban really made their money in the south. Out to the east in places like Maroof um, was a huge smuggling node down by Spinboldak, where 
it was just corruption, you know, left and right, where people like General Razak, who, you know, probably the most powerful man in Afghanistan before he was killed by the Taliban, you know, it was a, an open secret that you know, he wasn't working with the Taliban. He did, he despised the Taliban, but he would extort them when they were smuggling stuff in and out because it would help his operations. So I, you, you put all those things together and you go, this does not make a good recipe for success. And mind you, this is before General Nicholson spoke to Senator McCain. How are we in a stalemate or prior to that staring defeat, you know, Taliban staring defeat in the face? We can't even drive from Kandahar to Ruzgan, two of the three main, two of the four main southern provinces. Dude, what was your, um, I would say towards the end of your deployment there or uh, your, your service there as a civilian, how would you assess the Taliban presence in, in Ruzgan province? Uh, I mean, so we, they were completely surrounding the provincial capital and they were happy to do so. We, we saw at that point that the Taliban's plan to uh, maintain control of the rural areas was very effective. They had effective shadow governance um, throughout uh, Deiraud in the west. Um, Khazaruzgan, the eastern province, which borders Ghazni and Zabul, I think had lost um hadn't hadn't been in uh, ansaf control for over a year and possibly three years depending on the reports that you had um and especially after route bear was cut there was just there, there was there was no support coming they were hoping for um support from razik because of his uh, supreme control of the area and it unfortunately wasn't coming and we we basically had a small circle around Tarankot and the uh, the EAP location with our um, advisors posted up there that was fairly safe. And outside of that, it was complete Taliban control, um, holes on the holes on the roadways, uh, gathering the villagers for the poppy harvest, and uh, it was it was good business for the Taliban. And are you familiar with Mullah Aminullah from Aruzgan? He was their their uh, provincial government. Oh yeah, yeah. There were there, yeah, there right. was a lot going on with that. Time. Yeah, sure. And one of my favorite, well, you know, favorite, and I mean, you know, professionally favorite thing when he laid out the Taliban strategy in an interview at Voice of Jihad, he basically said, you know, the the I, you know, the ISAF slash Resolute Support, whatever it was at the time, had come out basically and said its strategy was to hold key cities and key districts key population centers and they'll figure out the the situation in the the remote districts and Amanullah's response to that was great we'll meet you in the cities i mean he was going to conduct a class he and the taliban we're going to conduct a, a classic guerrilla insurgency and he did it. i mean what you just described was Amanullah, you know taking the remote areas of Ruzgan and laying pressure to the center and that's what the taliban ultimately did at the end of the war because then kabul was one of the last places to fall and uh, yeah, it's it's you know, you um, Zach, you mentioned General uh, Razak. I mean, I remember when was it 2018 when he was killed? Is that correct? 2018 or 2019, one of those two. Years. Yeah, in that time frame, I remember when he when the Taliban finally got to him. It was you know, I I kind of figured Kandahar was lost at that point. It actually took a, a bit longer than I thought. It took till the till the bitter end. But you know, the way you're describing it is that Kandahar seemed to have been lost alone before the Taliban was able to march into Kandahar city and take control of the military base at, at Kandahar airfield as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say so. Um, when you looked at, 
when you looked at specifically the the goal of we're going to hold on to the key provincial capitals, cool. That's 25% of the population, um, which we're trying to fight a counterinsurgency. We're trying to advise at this point a counterinsurgency. Um, how the hell do you expect that to work when three quarters of the people were just disregarding? Um, you know that That is how you create more insurgents and more extremists and more terrorists because you ignore what they need. Um, it, it, the, one of the better examples is in the early days of the war up in Ruzgan, where we we had this bad habit nationwide in Afghanistan of finding the local richest person and just having them kind of be our guide and doing their bidding, uh, like Golaga Shirzai down in Kandahar, where, oh, that guy's a Taliban or that guy's Al-Qaeda. No, he's a business rival, but we didn't care to ask those questions. And within in Aruzgan, we flipped an entire tribe away from the Americans because we took the word of the Khan family and just decimated their rival. Or, we, you know, we... we, we Stop supporting that tribe. We started supporting this tribe that the Khan family said to help out. And that tribe that was not sympathetic to the Taliban eventually became sympathetic to the Taliban. Right. And, and that happened to a lesser extent within Kandahar. Right. I think the bigger thing with Kandahar is, again, you know, Kandahar city itself is like 600,000 people, but there's 2 million people within the province. What are we doing for the other 1.4? We couldn't even get to Shawali Khan district anymore because they'd cut route there. Um so and, and we wouldn't go in and by we Americans or the Afghans, whoever you want to say was responsible for it, just could not or would not go into Maywand or go out to Maroof to try to interrupt these these nodes, whether it was facilitators or or poppy cultivators or you know small arms cells just weren't doing anything. So the local populace was dealing with who was running the show within their regions. And that was the Taliban. Stunning. Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's it, looking back on this, you know, again, as I said earlier, I think, you know. It, it, it becomes clear to me that we've really lost the war in that from that 2014, 15 to 2000, I'd say 18, 19 timeframe. Um, the Trump's deal and Biden's withdrawal were merely the closing acts of a, a, of a great tragedy. Um, it's really, really depressing covering it all that. And, and, you know, you, you, both of you are really making me think my work on the map might've been actually been a little bit too positive in, in many respects that it's very likely that things were even worse than I thought. And I was considered to be the pessimist in, in the group. I'll, let me share a quick story with you guys. Um, I, I may have told it here, but um, and I probably told it at the board boardwalk, but I'll, I'll say it again. Um, you know, I remember towards the end, uh, the uh and, and afghan interior ministry was going to issue a rebuttal to my map and you know basically show what the afghan government controls and the taliban controls and contests and it looked like a map i produced in like 2016 and 2017 so a friend of mine leaked it to me right who was plugged in um and my response was please have them not do this because i'm going to make it i have to respond to that if it's an official government map I could pick this apart, you know, province by province, like, and, and, you know, no one's going to, and then even then I have, you know, I'm looking back and looking back at that moment. And even, I, I think I was a little bit too conservative in my assessments. Clearly many districts, even ones that I was calling contested in Aruzgan and in, and in Kandahar were very likely Taliban controlled. Yeah. Yeah. We referenced your, uh, your, running map several times trying to explain that look even out on tolo news and twitter and 
you know, what you know, voice at Jihad, this information is getting out there. And it, it, I'm not going to say that it always fell on deaf ears, right? But it, it fell on stubborn ears, if you will. Yeah, they just, they, I'm going to, I don't think I've, I don't know if I've told this story, but a reporter, I'm, I'm not going to name, told me that my work was so disliked in Kabul that um, General Nicholson, no, I'm sorry, General Miller stormed out of a, a, a lunch after the reporter mentioned my name to him in my work on the map in Afghanistan. That's, that's how, that's how, um, I guess, difficult it was to recognize reality um, for, for some individuals. And I never produced that to try to destroy someone's career. It was done to, to serve as a warning to, to, you know, maybe you guys need to think about changing your strategy. Maybe you need to start taking the tal what the Taliban is doing, what they're saying and, and, take their strategy seriously, but it just, I think the desire to withdraw and um, the desire, and I, I think at the very highest levels, um, when you go to theater commanders and come um, to that level, I think those, they were just more interested in their promotions than they were. And, and hoping that the Afghanistan problem would kick the can could be kicked the down that can could be kicked down the road to another individual. So it's just, it's tragic uh, what we witnessed, and it's unfortunate that your analysis that you were providing just wasn't taken seriously most of the time. It has to be frustrating to you. Well, and, and it's concerning that we're not seeing any responsibility being taken by the leadership. I mean, no, nobody's resigned. Nobody's nobody's come out and said we messed up. I mean, I, and it's it's scary for the future because we're like we're zero for two in long form, you know, fights against insurgency right now. You know, we're not we're not in a good position. We haven't shown that we have a clear, like theater wide level understanding of how to successfully combat insurgencies, except, you know, carpet bombing the country and leaving, you know, that but I and we're we're seeing, you know, a lot of young leaders coming up that are going to be inheriting positions vacated by people who um lost a war and don't un don't seem to understand why they lost the war. Yeah, the my concern too is that you know when no responsibility, when no account of there's no accountability, we can make the same mistakes and it doesn't have to just be insurgencies. Are we making the same mistakes in Ukraine? Um have the same analytical problems, same assessments are they being made um right now? I don't know the answer to that. I have a suspicion that there might be, but let's face it. I mean, some of the same generals who were in charge, including our, our previous chairman, Joint Chiefs of Staff, was oversaw the debacle in Afghanistan, oversaw engagement in in Ukraine, and and I'm not going to make this about that, but you know, we were told uh, that we were going to well, this sounds familiar, rebuild a, a, a military, make it an effective fighting force. And then it would launch an offensive to retake territory. And um, if those leaked assessments were, or those leaked plans were true, which I think they were, that Ukraine was supposed to drive Russia to the sea in weeks, if not in, in less than a month. And here we are four months later. And there's no sign, you know, the Russians haven't penetrated, but a couple, I'm sorry, the Ukrainians haven't penetrated, but a couple miles. And I don't know anyone who believes that they're going to reach. Tomahawk, let alone reach the, the Sea of Azov. So, you know, did we just make that same mistake? Did we just commit? Now, look, the good news is with Ukraine is we didn't commit um, 
we didn't um the american lives weren't put at risk that's what we did in iraq and afghanistan which is absolutely reprehensible um but how many billions of dollars you know is the ukraine going to be able to build another army and equip it to withstand a, a potential russian onslaught let alone retake territory anyway i i realize i'm opining and i'll get off my soapbox on that no no that that's a really good point bill um th- that's a really good point to talk about you know learning from our mistakes um, in Afghanistan and applying it to Ukraine. And I, I would say we're clearly not. Now, I haven't been in the Intel game in six years, right? So if I'm wrong, hey, I might be wrong. But there is something that Afghanistan and Ukraine have in common. And I, I am I am all for, I, I support Ukraine. You know, they have right to defend their sovereignty and they have right to push back the Russian military. Um, but let's not pretend that Ukraine has a squeaky clean government similar to Afghanistan, uh, something that we never addressed in Afghanistan. And the, the shiny example of that under the Ghani administration, you know, he started this big anti-corruption initiative. And by the time it trickled down to tax South, it was, okay, we're going to have effective corruption and ineffective corruption. There's no such thing as effective corruption. General Razak killed a lot of Taliban. He probably killed a lot of innocent people too. Okay. He's the reason that province didn't fall earlier. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean he was a net positive for the overall war effort. But to sit here and, and it might have been a reason that the Taliban was able to recruit significantly yes. in Kandahar as well. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, General Raza was in a Czech side and they have a an ongoing feud with the Norzai tribe for, you know, smuggling access across the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. So plenty of the Norzai, if they weren't members of the Taliban, were sympathetic to the Taliban and would allow them to, you know, travel through Norzai territory. Pretty well known, pretty well documented. And what did Razak do? Again, killed a lot of Taliban. He also probably maybe used some of that um, power to get rid of some of his Norzai enemies. Yeah, and I, you know, the the corruption part. You know, yeah, I, I think there there is a lot of parallels, right? We got corruption. We're building a military based on our own, right? Did we give Ukraine the wrong tactics? Did we give them the wrong equipment? I think we did that in Afghanistan significantly, right? We built an Afghan military in our image when i in my estimation and this is oversimplified the afghan military needed light infantry it needed to be recruited locally so they had buy-in and they needed you know fire brigades or fire battalions you know, regional and, and national to put out the fires when big problems happen but you know they they needed to fight locally so they also local had a stake i mean same problem with forming the government the fact that the president of Afghanistan appointed provincial governors. Yeah, no, no chance of corruption there. Um, who, you know, if he appoints some, you know, the district leader um, in Kandahar, but the guys from, oh, I don't know, from Badakhshan, yeah, that's going to fly real well locally. People are going to have a lot of faith in local government. And, you know, you had a, a lot of the same problems with, you know, Tajiks or, um, or, or, you know, Uzbeks in the Afghan army going down to Kandahar when, you know, they're not trusted and vice versa. Right. So, yeah, I just, I just, I worry we've, we've made a lot of the same planning and analytical mistakes. It's, um, you know, and the last, you know, you said it, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, I was beating the drum for resignations as the collapse was happening, Stu. And I, I continued today and I get a lot of pushback for it. The response that I get is, well, they were just doing their job. And my response to that is, is you know what? You shouldn't do a job that you don't believe in. Um, go ahead and resign and not get that next star. You know, guess what? You'll still probably get your, you know, corporate, your, you know, your position on a corporate board. And you'll still get your multi-hundred thousand dollar pension from the U.S. government. You'll be fine. Um, but, you know, some of these guys, I, it's just in my estimation, they're just climbers. 
And that's the worst thing. And, and, and what did the next generation learn? That there is an accountability that they, they can fuck up and, you know, you can fuck up uh, losing a country and um, you, you likely won't be held accountable. Um, just as long as you, you know, it's, it's in line with what your political leadership. Yeah. Well, I mean, now general Nicholson is the chief executive of Lockheed Martin's middle East branch. So one of the things that I saw in, in Afghanistan was uh, when we talk about, you know, I referenced earlier, just the lack of skin in the game, the lack of concern or the lack of understanding. I ran into people within the Intel shop that just didn't understand the Taliban, didn't understand Islam, didn't understand Pashtun Wali. And like, as, especially as all source intelligence analysts, we are essentially encyclopedias who need to understand these things. You have your signatures, your humanters, your imagery analysts who actually collect the information, we're supposed to be reading it, deciphering it, understanding what it says. At the same time, having somewhat of a cultural understanding of how it applies, especially in southern Afghanistan. And I remember there was a meeting where General Razak came to meet with the TAC South leadership, and they met in the dining facility. Um, the problem is it was the second week of Ramadan. And I remember being in the dining facility and all of the tax South leadership that was in that meeting, full plates. And General Razak, out of you know the whole past two wallet being kind of thing, had a chicken wing on his plate. And I just thought to myself, how – and this is 2016, 2017, 2017. I missed Ramadan the first year. How fucking stupid do you have to be to host the meeting in the defect during Ramadan? And you know it's Ramadan because we talk about it all the damn time. Because Ramadan is typically before and after Ramadan, you might see an increase in attacks in certain places. And they had a damn lunch meeting with a man who is a rather devout Muslim in the dining facility. It, it just, it, it, to me, I had already become rather jaded with what was happening in Afghanistan. And that kind of just sealed the deal. Like after that, that happened, I told myself, I'm definitely not going to be here after 2017 because nothing I do is going to be of any relevance. And coincidentally, when we saw Razik, uh, knowing his penchant for um, a- attempts to to kill him, we uh, we made our way out as quickly as possible. Yes, yeah, quite smart. If you're not meeting him on a U.S. military base, U.S. run military base for sure. Yeah, that 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 cultural insensitivity. No excuse for that. What 15, 16 years after entering Afghanistan, after sp- most of these commanders spent significant time in Iraq as well. Y- you know, it, it's just all part of the problems that we experienced in Afghanistan. I, I should point out that the theater leadership was the National Guard, and that is not to discredit the National Guard, but that is not the role of the National Guard. Um, they were not supposed to be an operational arm of the military like that, where they're leading uh, troops into combat and they're overseeing missions. And again, something when we talk about foreign policy and the roles within our military, that really bit us in the ass because you had people who were, and it's not that they're part-time soldiers, but who went from not my job to over the span of a decade, we morphed it into this thing that they were never really prepared for. And it showed, especially within that moment. Yeah. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll quickly share an experience. I was in the New Jersey national guard for two years and there were times where they just did not take training seriously. And me and others who were active duty, who had served in active duty, we were constantly saying, look, we need to take the little time that we had to train because there may be a day where this matters, right? You know, and when you get two weekends a month and, and two weeks a year, 
that is not a hell of a lot of time. Like I can remember I was in an infant mechanized infantry unit and we would get the ammo issued to run the lanes, the infantry lanes, and they would just sit there and they wouldn't run the lanes. And I'm like, we have this ammo. We could do this. We could, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're like, like those of us who were, who had, had been an active and some of the guys who were, you know, had only come up through the guard and the leadership, oh, we want, we don't want to expend all the ammo or we don't have the time or we don't want someone to get hurt or it's too hot or all these reasons. And I'm going, I couldn't, I couldn't stay in an environment like that. So when, but I got out in 97. Um, and, you know, I guess it would be eight years later, I see the National Guard in Ramadi and they were getting beaten hard with suicide attacks, with assaults on their thing. You know, the first day I get in Ramadi, four National Guard soldiers um, were killed in a suicide attack. You know, look, a lot of regular army troops, but the Marines and the regular army that were out in Ramadi were shaking their head going, these guys are just aren't ready. Like, we're having a hard time with this. These guys are struggling. And your point, Zach, about, you know, putting the National Guard in positions that it wasn't designed for. Again, this is all anecdotal. I get it. But I've heard these stories and I've, and I've, you know, I know what I've seen with my own eyes to, to know that, you know, that is not an indictment on the National Guard, is it, by the way? That is, that is just, you know, putting, taking a unit that doesn't have the right training, that doesn't have the right time to, the amount of time to train and putting them in, in these deadly situations. And because the US military was just too short because we bit off more than we could chew in Iraq and, and, and guys lost their lives because of this. I mean, it also, last thing, it also manifested in um, the National Guard units where they rotated out and it was one unit, half of it did nine months, the other half did the other nine months. So we called them turn one, turn two. The turn one of the National Guard unit, I mean, despite losing Route Bear, you you saw progress in the sense that you saw more ANSAF-led missions, you saw more Afghan Special Forces-led missions, you saw fewer checkpoints being abandoned, you saw more, you know, key territory at least being retained longer than normal and then the you know turn two came in and their and their whole mindset was we just want to kill as many people as possible like okay well your predecessor was successful by not focusing on that they were more successful by focusing on maintaining ground lines of communication ensuring that the afghan military is capable of conducting their jobs ensuring that the afghan special forces are trained to the standard that they don't need american special forces going on the missions with them they did not care about that. They wanted dead Taliban. And part of me, and this is where the jaded, you know, element comes out. Part of me goes, well, there's this guy who's a lawyer in the real world. He wants to like wants to look like Billy Badass. And so all he wants to do is strike Taliban. We're going to spend sixty thousand dollars dropping a Hellfire missile to kill a guy carrying a hundred and fifty dollar AK who doesn't even have fucking shoes. And it's not going to make a difference in the war effort. Yeah, you just described the lack of continuity of mission seen this in Iraq, seen this in Afghanistan as well. Just the decision to not, you know, stick with a particular mission mindset and follow it through. It's, it's you know, every commander wanted to put his stamp. You know, every new commander, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah, sure, that's how they did it, but I want to do it this way. The good ones paid attention. They, I'm not saying every commander did this, by the way, but the good ones who didn't have that mindset, they learned from their predecessors. They took what worked and adjust what didn't. And, and, you know, tried not to shake things up too much unless they needed shaking. And that's, uh, you know, these are all reasons why we failed and, and, and all reasons why the lessons need to be learned. You don't inherit OER billets, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> you got to forge your own path. Yeah, that's true. Yep. That is true. It, it makes it difficult. I, I came out of the military with a fairly positive look at it. And at, at this point, I, I don't know if I could recommend to, you know, if I, if I had a child, I don't know if I could recommend to them to join. Your leadership isn't 
going to have your back. They're going to send you to a ultimately pointless war, and no one will, and it'll be nobody's fault. You can be killed or maimed or, or, or you know, have grave injuries for the rest of your life for, you know, and they don't care about victory. I mean, that's what we, right? We, I didn't join the lose. Joined to defend my country and to do good. And, you know, I, I know we talked about this on the boardwalk. Um, and, you know, that I'm, I'm a little bit older than you guys. Um, I have, you know, my friends, kids are of age to join the military and, um, I've coached hockey, um, street roller and ice. So I know a, know a lot of young boys and, you know, dads will, and moms will ask me, should my join the, my son join the military? It's really hard for someone like me who loves my country, who enjoyed my service, who, you know, pr- proud of my service and, 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 you know, for whatever faults the military, you know, quirks the military has, I, you know, it's, it's certainly something worth, I believe worth doing, but it's hard with a straight face to, to, to tell a father, to tell a mother that, yeah, it's a good idea for you to join because I'm not sure. I don't think I'm the, I'm not the only veteran that feels this way. I'm not the only person my age that, um, that's worried about that. It, there's re- massive recruiting problems across the board in the U S military. And if they don't think that this is part of the problem, then, um, then they're sorely mistaken when guys like us can't in, in good faith, you know, recommend joining the military, then, um, you know, people who serve, you know, what's the incentive for people to do so. Yeah. The people that send you to those pointless wars will become a chairman of a board that will lobby to send you to more pointless war. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, you know, Afghanistan's on a point, pointless war because we made it pointless. It was the right thing to do. You know, and I see you guys shaking your heads on that in agreement. I mean, they become pointless when you lose them. There's, you know, there's no point in fighting a war. You have no intention of winning. I think the Bush administration did have an in, good intentions. It didn't sell the war to the American public over time because it got involved in Iraq, because it got bogged down in, in some domestic issues. And then from then on out, once President Obama said his policy was to get out of Afghanistan and then Trump cut the deal and then Biden executed. Yeah, it was it was a war that became pointless, you know, once the once the surge was over and, and President Obama wanted to leave the country. What are your thoughts? Uh, go ahead, Zach, I'll start with you. A couple of thoughts. Right. So one and, and this is a, a, a good bad. Right. It, it is good that American casualties are relatively low. Um in both wars, really, um, it is a good thing that American casualties are relatively low. I think at the same time, um, I think because American casualties are relatively low, people didn't give a shit how long we were there. There's a, a quote, and I, it's attributed to Jim Webb, and maybe it is Jim Webb. I don't know, but he said, you know, if the quote is, if 25% of Congress had to send their children to war, we'd have a different foreign policy. Um, I, I firmly believe that, right? Because there was no, there was skin in the game, but there was some skin in the game, right? Especially by 2015, 2016, 2017, when you have more Afghan-led missions, you're not sending Americans out in harm's way as much outside of the SF guys and the Rangers and stuff like that. You're going to be content with just sitting around, right? Because what are you going to say? Well, there's only 15,000 service members in Afghanistan. We're just helping build a nation right now, despite no input from the State Department, which the issue was we never built up the damn government because the State Department was nowhere to be found. Right? Instead, you had captains out in villages trying to you know, help settle you know, water disputes. And that's not the captain's job. You know, um, you had... you know, no accountability is the largest thing. And we I know we talked about it. We're just nobody said, yeah, I was wrong and I should resign. And, and we commended Secretary Mattis for stepping down when he could not faithfully execute President Trump's decision. 
decision to leave Syria. Secretary Mattis disagreed with that. I disagree with Secretary Mattis on that, but I respect him for saying, I can't do this. I'm going to step down, let Ash Carter make that decision or let Ash Carter, you know, uh, fulfill that. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Stu, uh, parting thoughts from you. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like America needs a winner, but I'm, I hope it doesn't, it doesn't come for a long time. Um, I, I have concern about our, our leadership's capability to choose the, the right fights to take. And I'm hoping we, we can have a period of peace to sort of pick up the pieces and get ready for what, you know, the next threat that's coming. A precedent has been set that there are no consequences for decisions that result in unnecessary loss of life. And that is dangerous. Um, as somebody who does have children, I and my wife and I talk about this because uh, my sister and I broke a streak of like a hundred and something consecutive years of military service in my family. And it's glad to do it. And I'm going to advise my kids not to do it. Find a different way to pay for school. These, these people aren't worth fighting for. The American people, sure. But the people telling you to go do things, not necessarily. It's, it's tragic. I mean, and I, I wouldn't call myself an isolationist, and I'm certainly not one from the classic sense, but what I believe that America needs to have a strong foreign policy and be forward-leaning in the world. I mean, I think we should judiciously choose the fights that we, we take, but I have to look at every conflict now with skepticism. I have to be very careful because of the lack of seriousness that we've had from our foreign policy establishment because they've put our soldiers and airmen and marines uh, you know and 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 sailors in harm's way with no intention um in the end to achieve the outcomes that they state they they seek and it's just a very difficult position to be in I, it's not where i want to be um i think it can lead us to make you know but again how do i support getting involved in X, Y, or Z when I don't have confidence in leadership to pr- to properly and faithfully execute that policy. Yeah, I mean the the, the slave markets in Libya, you know, yeah, there there it's there's we we need to have a far reaching uh, plan when when we put ourselves out there and conduct offensive operations, and I think that's something that's probably always going to be an issue with America because you know we have political upheaval every four years every four years. And so there's just, I, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how we solve it. The problems there. That's the, that's the word. That's the thing they, they teach you not to do in the military is come with no solutions, but I, I don't know what, what we have right now. Isn't, isn't it? You know, you, you had touched on and I'll end it here. You had touched on one thing. Um, the, the fact that Congress doesn't have their sons and daughters serving, maybe they should, maybe, you know, maybe we, I used to be adamantly opposed to the draft, for instance. Now I look at, I'm not saying we should, but I look at that a little bit differently. If everyone was forced to serve, if everyone had had skin in the game, I believe you said that, Zach, or I don't know if you said that's too, but whoever said it, that's exactly right. Maybe we would take our foreign policy a lot more seriously. Stu, Zach, thanks again for joining us on Generation Jihad. It was a pleasure. You know, again, when I, after I did the podcast at the boardwalk, I, I had to get you guys on. I just knew you guys, I think you guys like represent a, a large portion of our listenership uh, here at Generation Jihad. You're the guys who I know are out there. I know we're listening and I never really hear from except for in these odd circumstances. And once I hear from you, I want to talk to you. And that's, I wanted to get you guys on to, to share your stories, your experiences with the war on terror, with Afghanistan and your time in the military. And I, I really appreciate you coming on. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. And hello to all the nerds listening. Yes, definitely. We are all nerds. Everyone, take a listen to The Boardwalk. Kyle, Zach, and Stu, they do a great job over there. Give them a listen. Give them your support. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Always a pleasure to get you guys listening. You can listen to us on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcast. If you can, give us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you again soon.